You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start out at verse 47. No, 37. I don't even think there's an Acts 2, 47. Yeah, verse 37. If you're new with us, we are in the uh, early stages of the book of Acts. The series titled is Being the Church. And being always leads to doing in Christianity. Who we are leads to what we do, and that's one of our core values as we go through the book of Acts. I was thinking about a number of years ago, I was on a men's retreat, I was the speaker, and uh, after one of the sessions, a gentleman uh, came up to me, and I'd known this fellow for four or five years, and he asked me one of the most compelling questions uh, from, you know, listener to speaker, from congregant to pastor, and he said this, he says, Pastor Keith, how can I know for certain that I'm saved? How can I know for certain that I'm a Christian? And as I thought about that question and and have known this gentleman for a number of years, I thought he would have already known the answer. So it really got my attention. I said, so just so we don't hit this in a cursory way, how about we have dinner tonight and let's just talk more through what it means to be a Christian, to know you're saved, have eternal life. Well, we had dinner that night. We had a wonderful time, provided him with some resources, and his faith journey is progressing. We come to a passage this morning, folks, that I believe addresses and answers the question of the ages. It truly is a core question. Think it through. Every world religion is established on one question. What does eternity look like? How do I get there? How do I know I'm going to live forever? How do I please or appease God? Christianity has the foundational answer to that through Jesus Christ. My story is very similar. I was 19 years old. I remember uh, as a teenager, I had a fear of dying. What would happen to Keith Missile when he passed away? Why? My dad died in his early 40s with cirrhosis of the liver, and it really shook me. I had no idea where dad went. What was his eternal destiny? And then I personalized it. Many times I'd lay in bed wondering, If Keith Missile passed away, where would he go? Would he go to heaven? Would he be with God for all eternity? And friends, at age 19, I had no answers until some friends shared with me the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope you have your Bibles open, your devices ready. Acts 2, 37 through 41, five verses jam-packed with truth, answering the question of the ages. Now, before we dive in, let me go back to last week to go forward. Last week, Peter preaches the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, Jews from all around the known world were there, and it lists who they are. Folks from Africa, from uh, Far East, from up in Turkey, Cappadocia, and the list goes on and on. They're there to celebrate Pentecost, and what happens? God the Holy Spirit shows up and dwells and empowers his people, his apostles, Peter being the spokesperson, to preach the gospel. 
And what is the gospel? It's real simple. It goes back to the Old Testament. It's nothing new. That Jesus Christ was the forecasted Messiah. And we looked at Joel and the Psalms. That Jesus Christ lived an incredible life and his life testified to God's signs and wonders. He was an influencer. But more importantly, that Jesus Christ came with the predetermined plan of God to give his life a ransom for many. And he died, he was buried, he rose from the grave on the third day. He ascended into heaven, and the apostles saw that today he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding, acting as the great high priest of Israel. That is the gospel. And Peter focused on one thing, Jesus. Now, look at verse 37 after he preaches this powerful message on the day of Pentecost. It's just a remarkable thing. Verse 37. When they heard this, again, these were Jews scattered throughout the whole known world in Jerusalem at Pentecost. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must I do? And we'll see contextually to be saved. Would you agree with me that's the question of the ages? Because if you can answer that question, think about the implications. You don't have to fear dying. You don't have to wonder about eternity. Your sins get addressed, which bring guilt and shame and so easily weighed us down. This is the question of the ages. And Peter had the privilege to address that, and so do I this morning. What I love about what's going on in Acts chapter 2, in a prayer meeting, we've already talked about this, 120 were gathered. The Spirit of God who was promised descends. They're empowered, they're indwelt, and now they proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes, the Word's at work, and what happens to people's hearts? There's conviction, and they ask the core question, how should I respond? And so here's the question before we dive into our passage. And it's a question that only you can answer and personalize. Do you know for certain today that you are saved? Saved from what? From your sins. From eternal separation from God. Saved to what? To heaven. To being with God for all eternity. It's not just saved from something, it's saved to something. What a blessing. Do you know today that because of Jesus' finished work at Calvary, your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven? Debt paid in full. Folks, that's the gospel. That's why Jesus came. Do you personally know today, right now, that if you passed into eternity, the Lord would meet you at those pearly gates, and they are pearly according to Revelation, by the way, and there's 12 of them, at the pearly gates, and welcomes you in. With all my heart, this is what God wants you all to know today, whether at home, whether here live. First John, the great apostle of faith, the beloved of Jesus Christ said this, I write these things that you may know for certain you have eternal life. Not wonder, not wishful thinking, that you might know for certain, yes, I'm in. Yes, I get to meet the Lord in glory. Yes, on my deathbed, I have hope for all eternity. That's a gift, folks. So, let's take a look at our passage. Questions asked, Peter answers it. 
Look at verses 38 through 41. Here's the gospel. Peter says, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And I would like to, if your English translation says for the forgiveness of sin, I would like to correct that if I could. The Greek preposition there is gar, and should be translated because of the forgiveness of your sins. Trust me with that one. So, because of the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice, folks, this is such an encouragement. For the promises for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, meaning us, Gentiles, 2,000 years later, as many as the Lord our God will call. In other words, God's involved in this process. The Spirit of God is at work, wooing, drawing. Jesus said no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn. As many will be called. And with many other words, he testified, and notice this phrase, folks, strongly urged them. He's pleading with them. Kinsmen of Israel, grab hold of Jesus the Messiah, if you could picture it back then, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, 3,000 people were added. So in studying for this uh, talk today, some criticize the numbers of the New Testament. Like 3,000 people responded to the gospel and got baptized. Is that possible? Guess what? Two things. History and archaeology validates that that would be very easy. You go to Israel today, southern steps where the church was born, southern part of the temple. Guess what's right below it? Dozens of mikvoims. You know what mikvoims are? The ritual baths that the Jews would, would come to the temple and purify themselves before they go into worship. They use the mikvoims. There's one archaeological site that's a huge pool about the size of this room where you step down and could get baptized. It'd be no problem. Then others would say, come on, 3,000 people in a small city of Jerusalem. Guess what they say today? They estimate that somewhere between 50 and 100,000 inhabitants of Jerusalem back then. And then you take the diaspora Jews who came from all across the known world. There was a lot of people. And so 3,000 isn't fanciful. It is factual. It is biblical. It's historical and archaeological. I thought that was a side note. So, page four, digital guide. You got your notes. Who likes to take notes here? Let me see. Are there any note takers? One, two, three. Do you take notes, Cole? My kind of guy. I'm a note taker, me and you. All right, so here's the note. The blessing. Every individual listening today, and please hear me, this is for the children. Please hear me. Let the little children come to me. Every individual listening today, young and old, can experience salvation. Know they're saved. How? By responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The people responded, folks. They asked, Peter preached, they responded and got baptized. This is time for action. Lord, open our hearts. Draw us to yourself. That's what we're talking about here. Three responses from our side, and then the beautiful thing, the passage closes, what we do, and then what God supernaturally does. Let's take a look. Response number one, be broken. Be broken. You might say, where do you get that, Pastor? Let me show it to you, verse 37. And when they heard this, meaning the preaching of the gospel, they came under deep 
conviction. Literally, it means their hearts were pierced by the word of God. Why do I say be broken? Because, folks, until we see sin the way God sees sin, salvation won't have the compelling draw in our hearts. We worship a holy and righteous God. He is absolutely perfect and glorious. And we are not. Would you agree? If you're married here, just look to your spouse and say, would you agree? Right? I had a a student when I was uh, a youth pastor. I was discipling a guy named Jared. And he said to me, I had a mentor, Bob Lowry, says, do you think Pastor Lowry ever sins? I was like, well, that's a pretty good way to view Pastor Lowry. He had a, had a nice testimony. I said, Jared, ask his wife. <laughs> we know, right? It's empirical. But folks, until we take sin seriously like Scripture does, it's almost impossible to bow humbly before God's throne of grace. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our mouths, Romans 3, are are an open grave. And until we're convicted of our sin, until we're broken over our sin, we won't cry out to a holy and righteous God for salvation. Can I give you one picture of this? Because I think it's a really good picture. Many of us are familiar with King David. Sadly, he committed adultery, murder. He tried to cover up his mess. He ran as a spiritual fugitive, but God loved him too much. Said, David, I don't want you to be miserable, running, a spiritual fugitive. He sends Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet shows up, tells a parable. David's frustrated. Kill that man. He ought to die. And Nathan's bold enough and loving enough and courageous enough. Said, David, you're the man I'm talking about. You know what David did? He wrote this. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. You know what's important about that statement? The personal pronoun, I. Forget about everyone else right now. Just standing before the Lord. God, search my heart. Try my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. Forget about the person next to you. This is between you and the Lord. David says, I have sinned. Be merciful to me. Psalm 34 David cries out, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Isn't that beautiful? To be broken over your sin, God draws near and he saves us when we are crushed. Do you remember when Jesus was in Nazareth? This goes back to the Gospel of Luke 4. He opens up Isaiah 61. He reads from the prophet these words, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. Notice this next phrase. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted over our sin. That's why the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins. Why? God will comfort them. Folks, until we see our sin the way God sees it, until we see our brokenness before a holy and righteous heavenly father, we just stay apart. But when God breaks our heart, when there's conviction, I have sinned, Lord, like David, boy, the, the progress of the gospel takes place. Second thing, response number two, 
So we're broken then, look at verse 38, Peter says, repent. This is one of the most confusing concepts in all of scripture. And so I want to encourage you, on the edge of your seat, put on your thinking cap, Lord, teach me. Now, remember who the audience is. They're Jews from around the known world. Do you think the Jews got the idea of repentance? Do you think this was new news to them? Folks, the Jews got it. There's no surprise here. Why? You look at the Old Testament, the word turn, the word return, the word repent is continuous. In fact, Israel had their own liturgical process for repentance. It was manifested. Sometimes it was public wailing. We have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's a book of repentance. They did things like wore weird clothes. Just imagine me showing up with, uh, what is it called? Sackcloth. Anybody wear sackcloth lately? I think it's that bristly kind of scratchy, nasty wool plus stuff. They wore that to demonstrate the repenting and then they took ashes and they would cover themselves in it why to say lord man my heart's broken and i would just want to humbly bow before you and demonstrate that i am truly repentant and folks please hear me sometimes we miss this god is way more interested uh, in the inward repentance than the outward repentance See, Israel could put on a garment, they could publicly wail, they could put ashes on, but if it's just outward and it's not inward, a transformation of the heart, the Greek word in the New Testament is metanoia, change of mind, change of heart, change of lifestyle, and an absolute allegiance to God. So yeah, the outward's important for Israel, but God always looked at the heart. Remember the picture? You could be circumcised in your flesh. But until your heart is circumcised, it really doesn't matter. Now, you might be struggling saying, wow, Keith, it sounds like something we have to do. Oh, no, no, no. This is the spirit and the word's work. When the word could, convicts, when the spirit convicts, there was a brokenness and a turning, turning from sin, turning to the Savior. Now, you might say, did Jesus preach repentance? Oh, yeah. In fact, you'll discover that Jesus opened and closed his ministry with repentance. Let me read that to you. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus launches his public ministry saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Folks, this isn't just an Old Testament message to Israel. Jesus' public ministry was predicated upon repentance. Then you might say, well, didn't that change the age of grace? No. Luke 24 closes with these words. Jesus is meeting with his disciples after the resurrection. He says, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Don't miss this, folks. Luke 24, 46 through 47. And repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is the gospel. We turn from a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of allegiance. We turn to the Savior. And it all starts in the heart. Brokenness over our sin, convicted that we fall short of the glory of God. We turn from our way of life and we turn to the Savior.
Jesus in Luke 5, and again, I'm always going to connect Acts to Luke as best I can. He says this, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was his mission statement, Luke 5.32. I've called sinners to repentance, to turn from their wicked ways, and to turn to the righteous work of Christ at Calvary. Paul picked it up. In Acts 20, he spent three years in Ephesus. You know what he summarized his ministry with the elders? He says, I've been faithful, guys. I've gone from house to house. I've gone in your community preaching repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul summarized three years of ministry in Ephesus, repentance towards God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, going back to Luke. We looked at a parable when we went through the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus told this parable that really illustrates repentance. Two guys. One's a self-righteous Pharisee. I'm the man. I got a spiritual resume. Thank you, God, that I'm so good. I tithe. I fast. I do this. I do that. Thank you that I'm not like that jerk over in the corner, that tax collector. Self-righteous. Religion. Doesn't repent. No brokenness. But then there's the tax collector, Jesus says. His head is bowed towards heaven. He's broken over his sin. He cries out one phrase, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's brokenness that leads to repentance, and that's where it begins. When we realize our sin has separated us from God, we, like the tax collector, say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not by our righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of the water of the word, Titus says. His righteousness at Calvary. Lord, be merciful to me. So may I ask, can you remember a day where you're truly broken over your sin? Can you remember a day when you cried out to the Lord, be merciful to God, to me, God, a sinner? That's where it begins. Now, the third one's real interesting. Be baptized. Now, this might rock you a little bit because you're going to wonder, whoa, how does that kind of play out? Well, hopefully uh, you'll understand. Again, may I suggest, going back 2,000 years ago, when they heard words like repentance and baptism, no surprise. Why? John the Baptist, right, the Baptist, was the forerunner baptizing people in the Jordan River, including Jesus. But remember, he called them, show forth fruit that reflects your repentance. So this wasn't a surprise to be baptized, right? So here's what I'd like to suggest. When God's spirit and word breaks our heart, when he moves us by his spirit to repent, that's the inward work of the gospel. That's the heart change. That's turning from uh, change of mind, change of heart, change of allegiance. You know what the baptism is? It's the outward expression of the inward reality. This is Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. When do you confess? in the waters of baptism. Isn't it interesting? They came to genuine faith in Christ there in Acts 2, southern steps of the Temple Mount. I've been there numerous times. Walked right on down to the mikvahim and got baptized. It was an immediate obedience of faith. The inward led to an outward. Does that make sense? Somebody say amen. Yeah, there's a few amens. 
Thank you, sir. But you know what's cool? Can I just lay it out for you in the book of Acts? It's the normative absolute pattern in the book of Acts. Real quickly. Acts 2, 3,000. Come to faith in Christ, repent of their sins, get baptized. Acts 8, a guy from Cush in Africa, we say Ethiopia, but he's from Cush, he comes in, here's the gospel, he gets baptized. Acts chapter 9, the persecutor of the church, remember him, Saul? Comes to faith in Christ, was blinded for three days, he gets baptized. Acts 10, Cornelius, Peter goes up to the coast, just north of Joppa, Cornelius, a Roman a soldier, Gentile, gets converted, gets baptized. Acts 16, we're in Philippi, now we're in Europe. Lydia, at the river, comes to genuine faith in Christ, she gets baptized. Paul and Silas get thrown into prison, preach the gospel in Philippi. The Philippian jailer and family come to faith in Christ, they get baptized. Acts 18, Crispus gets baptized after he believes. It's the normative pattern. There's not one exception in the book of Acts. You repent because you're broken. You put your faith in Christ. And the first step, obedience of faith, is to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection through believer's baptism. That's what baptism is, folks. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. And what a beautiful, beautiful truth. Now, those are what we're called to do Now let's close out with what God does. And this is really fun. Two promises. Number one, God promises to grant forgiveness. And with all my heart this morning, I hope we never, ever take this concept for granted. It is such a powerful concept in the world of psychology, in the world of psychiatry. There is a gentleman... I did a little research on him. He was one of the early uh, psychiatrists in America. His name is Carl Menninger. Carl Menninger. He basically dedicated his life to helping people who were broken, especially children and child abuse, and, and the list goes on and on. And he said this. He said, I believe if the people I've worked with over my whole lifetime could experience true forgiveness, I would not have to see 75% of my patients again. Why? Forgiveness is a healing, healing element. To be freed from guilt, to be freed from shame. Remember Jesus at Calvary? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the gospel, Luke 24, repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. What a beautiful way to do life. And so, when you think about this gift, I want you to think in terms of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is another parable. And the interesting thing in Matthew 18 is Jesus likens forgiveness to a financial debt. And I won't take a survey here this morning, but I would assume there's a little bit of debt in this room, right? That's one of those common things in America. By the way, right now we're moving towards $29 trillion of national debts. You know what that means for the average American? $90,000. You know what that means for the average taxpayer? $250,000 of debts. Jesus likened in Matthew 18 our debt of sin towards God in financial terms. But here's what he says. Don't miss this. 
He says there's a king who forgave one of his servants a great debt, millions and millions of dollars. And we all say, thank you, Lord, hallelujah. I've been forgiven. But then that servant who'd been forgiven millions of dollars couldn't even forgive a few dollars of debt to another friend. And Jesus said these things ought not to be. But folks, think about it. We're not talking about financial debt towards God. You know what we're talking about? Track with me. We're talking about the debt of sin. He is a holy and righteous God, and we are not. Go back to the Ten Commandments real quickly. Think about it. The first commandment's idolatry. Have no other gods before me. How many of us have broken that? I have. Idolatry. And then we move into the basics, children, teenagers, lying, one of the great sins of youth, deceiving parents, deceiving those in authority, lying, stealing, and then a culture of coveting, a culture of greed, infidelity, stealing someone else's spouse. That's in the Ten Commandments. Now go another layer, Proverbs 6. There are six things, yea, seven the Lord hates. You know what the first one is? Pride, arrogance. How many of us have not struggled with that? Three of the seven sins in Proverbs 6 deal with the tongue. Do you realize that? A lying tongue, a deceitful tongue, a tongue that is used to separate brothers and sisters. Then jump to the New Testament. What does Jesus do? He goes another layer deeper. He goes to the heart. If you hate someone, you've committed murder. If you lust after someone, you've committed adultery. Then add the rest of the New Testament. Bitterness, lack of forgiveness, dissension. And the list goes on and on. Self-centeredness. Would you throw your hat in the ring with me this morning and say, Lord, I've sinned. I've fallen short of your glory. And I thank you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that you have forgiven all my sins, past, present, and future. That's the gospel. Folks, we can't do this on our own. It's not by our works of righteousness like that righteous Pharisee. It's according to his mercy he saves us. Jesus Christ at Calvary says seven things. The first one was, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine? After being brutally crucified, the first thing out of his mouth, and it's repeated, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's love. That's grace. Repent. Because of the forgiveness of your sin, be baptized, and you will, look at the next promise, and it's really beautiful, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, this is one of the most supernatural and remarkable realities in all of Scripture. Look at verses 38 and 39. Repent, Peter said to them, be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can we just pause for a moment right now and think of the implication? We sung a creed this morning, right? I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, three in one. This is supernatural. Folks, this is God, the third person of the Trinity, being gifted to us when we repent and put our faith in Christ and live obedience of faith baptism. What 
a blessing. Now, there's so much we could say about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, but can I give you four things to hang your hat on this morning? And one is just beautiful. It comes from Ephesians 2. When the Spirit indwells us, gives us his life, we live the resurrected life. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. Think about that. When you're dead in your sins and trespasses, you are dead. This is the valley of dry bones. <laughs> but then you repent, you believe, you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes, and you live this resurrected life. John 3 gives another picture of it. Jesus said, unless a person is born again, they won't see the kingdom of God. How are you born again? Born of the water and the spirit of God. When the spirit of God comes into your life, it's like a new birth. It's a fresh start. Slate, wipe, clean. I was going that way, now I'm going this way. It's God's way. It's living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then I love the progress of faith through the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17, talk about living as a new creation. So not only are we born again, now we live the new creation. If any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is passing, the new is coming. You know what that means? It means Galatians 5.22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Now we have the privilege to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And friends, my final one and my probably favorite one is Romans 8. You know what happens when the Spirit of God comes into your life? When you're born again, born of the water and Spirit of God? You get adopted into God's family and you become sons and daughters of your heavenly Father. And you know what Romans says? Then we have the privilege to cry out, Abba, Father, I didn't have much of a relationship with my biological father. But I can tell you this. When I came to faith in Christ, coming to know God as Abba, Father, that's an intimate term in the Aramaic language, and the intimacy of knowing him as my heavenly father, oh, what a joy it was. Romans 8 says this. They who have not the spirit of God do not belong to God the Father. We get adopted through the Spirit. And so as we close, let me remind you, turn in your Bibles if you would. Acts 2, 39 through 41. There's one more promise that's not in your outline, but it's a beautiful promise. For this promise is for you, the Jews there in Pentecost in Jerusalem. And don't forget, guys, it's for your descendants, your children, your children to come. And I love this next phrase. And for all who are afar off, that's us. This promise is for you 2,000 years later in Waukee, Iowa. Regardless of your faith journey, right now, you can embrace this promise. And so what does Peter do? Check it out. He says, with many other words, Peter testified and urge them. Be saved. Be saved from this corrupt generation. Folks, if we've heard one thing time and time again over the past decades, it's how corrupt culture and society is becoming, right? And we get frustrated. We, we pull our hair out. Nothing different back then. Why? Sin. Sin is the issue. G.K. Chesterton, 
responded to an editorial, and the editorial's title is, What is Wrong with This World? You know how he responded? Two words, don't miss this, I am. I'll throw my hat in the ring this morning. I'm part of the problem. Are you part of the problem? Do you see your sin? Are you broken over your sin? Do you repent of your sin and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? And when he comes into your life by the person of the Holy Spirit and you live obedience of faith, you take that next step to be baptized publicly. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Are you part of the problem? It's rhetorical. We all are. But have you embraced the solution? Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I urge you, I plead with you, as Peter did them, and 3,000 said yes, 3,000 committed and publicly confessed Christ as Savior and Lord. I want to invite Brett to come back up and let's worship together. Let me pray with you, please. Father, only you can give faith. Only you can grant us broken hearts to repent of our sin. It's a work of your spirit, and I plead with you today that your spirit, young and old, at home, here live, that you would have your way, Lord. Cause us to see that our sin has separated us. Cause us to be broken like David. I have sinned, Lord. Father, give us a spirit and heart to repent, to turn from our sin, our wicked ways, and to turn to Jesus. And Father, what a privilege to publicly testify of you, to say yes to beautiful believers' baptism, to declare that we believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ his only son, the Messiah and Savior of the world. We believe that the Spirit is gifted to the church to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We believe. So, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that your Spirit will do a work that only you can do. This is such a personal, personal response. So draw us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.